Last week, Pastor Aram kicked off our series looking at the first section, uh, verses 1 to 11. And it's interesting, as Paul is looking to address a, a significant issue between him and the church, he doesn't start his letter by addressing the readers. He doesn't even begin by addressing his situation. He starts with God. He wants their attention off of him. He wants their attention off themselves. He wants them to look at God who is a true source of comfort, a good reminder for all of us in the midst of crisis, problems, and suffering, and need for comfort. Often you get comfort, you find it when you get your attention off yourself and onto the Lord who is fully capable of comforting. After that introduction, Paul shifts to the specific matter at hand, and really what he does is kind of give a travel itinerary, which reading this seems kind of mundane, boring, uh, tedious, but is full of amazing, profound gospel truths. And I, I was wrestling with this. In fact, I, I had a hard time with this because I'm like, first of all, the details are confusing at first because I don't remember all the travel differences. But even then, that like, why, why is he just hashing this out? And why is this in scripture? If it's all God breathed, profitable for us, what are we to re- get from this? And I, I thought about this and this is amazing. This is Paul wrestling with and showing us his philosophy of ministry. He's showing us foundations of what it looks like to make gospel transformed disciples. Here's what it looks like to grow the church in Christ. And he does it in the context of a real life conflict. He doesn't do this in the, in the context of a nice Sunday school curriculum. He does it in a transparent, vulnerable way with the actual conflict he's experiencing with the Corinthians. They're, they're wrestling with all kinds of things. There's, uh, sarcastically, he calls them super apostles. They're leaders who are false leaders who are leading people astray. He's wrestling with that. They have problems with Paul. They just, they're kind of skeptical of him at this time, and it's growing among the church, and he's wrestling with that and the problems between them. And that's actually the challenge of the Christian life, right? This is why making disciples is hard because it comes to contact with people who are in conflict at times. Often, church conflict is not new. It's thousands of years old. I remember learning physics in my junior year of high school. And I remember the first few months learning the formulas, you know, F equals MA. I think that's all I remember now. But like, you know, those those things seem kind of easy at first because if you're trying to pay attention, at least, it seems easy. And the foundations you, you learn at first. But then when you actually start to do real life physics, it's not so easy. Because what happens after you learn the foundations of physics? And what happens when you're first doing the formulas of physics when you're learning for the first time? You don't have the letters F and you don't have the Greek letter mu or mu in it, which are what, if you remember? Friction. You first learn physics without friction. So you learn the fundamentals. But physics is much harder once you introduce real life friction to it, isn't it? The calculations are varied and it's much more difficult. Physics is easy when you're doing calculations in a frictionless environment. Ministry can be really idealistically easy when you do it in just kind of this mental exercise in a frictionless environment. Right? Making disciples would be so easy if it didn't involve any people. <laughs> right? <laughs> it, just, it was just content. It was just like you got the right knowledge and you just put it out there. But that's not life. People are involved. Sinful people, broken people. Yes, redeemed people, saved people, but still wrestling with all kinds of brokenness people. 
How do we make gospel transform disciples in a time when conflict arises, which is every time in every church, every place? How do we wrestle when there's false teachers leading people astray? It's every time, every place. False teachers today have many more platforms. They don't need to be present. They have social media. They have huge, beautiful websites. They have huge TV contracts, books spreading everywhere. Paul is defending his apostleship in the church. That's the main thing of this book. But he does it not because he's defending himself, but because the gospel is at stake. He's doing it against these people who are trying to tear Paul down. Paul, they're criticizing him a lot in the book. His appearance seems weak. Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, they say, you write amazing, powerful letters, but when you show up in person, you seem very, in, like, lacking. In, in, you're not very impressive when you show up. There's not much to you when you show up to us, Paul. You, you sound great in the letter, but you don't look so great. I totally understand that. <laughs> uh, some of you were here when I interviewed or was for the youth pastor back in 2007. That was back in the day when there wasn't really any smartphones except for the Blackberry, right? And so they wanted a picture of me uh, for the church to get to know, at least see my face when I was kind of candidating. And I, I, I set up my like point and click little Canon camera on my desk and I took it sitting down. And at that time I was like, exercising a lot. I think I was like 30 pounds lighter lifting every day. And so I wasn't standing, first of all, and I was kind of like bigger. And so I remember Ryan G, one of our members at the time, he like saw his picture and he's like, who is this guy? And then I come to church in Canada in person. He's like, who is this guy? <laughs> right? It's not that impressive when you see him in person. <laughs> That's why I so said, if you're short and you're kind of sending pictures to people and you want to get an impression, don't ever take pictures below your waist, right? Because you don't know how tall they are then. He suffers too much to be an apostle. They question his motives. They accuse him of being fickle. He says he's always going to do something and then he does it. In chapter three, they criticize him because he doesn't have enough reference letters, something important in their culture. They don't like how he handles money. They don't like his ministry methodology. Other than that, they love Paul, Right? And so he is wrestling with all of this. How do you make disciples when life is full of friction? It's important lessons we need to learn, not only because of leaders and churches, but individuals, I mean, small groups and communities, families, parents to children. This is amazing stuff here. I think we learned some amazing lessons here about faithfulness in ministry, centering on Jesus in the midst of friction in the midst of conflict? How do you maintain ministry, integrity, and faithfulness when times are tough, when conflicts confuse people? What are some of the values that should ground us when things are like that? I want to look at four values that should ground us in our efforts to make gospel transform disciples. How do we approach discipleship in the midst of a friction-filled environment? First value, grace-empowered godliness. We should approach discipleship, ministry, people with grace-empowered godliness. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. He uses the word boast a lot in Second Corinthians, which may seem like a conflict, right? 
we're, we, we don't think of boasting being a very Christian thing. And yes, if it's boasting about yourself, it, it's something we should never do. But boasting in Christ is encouraged throughout Paul's ministry. He does this, but also saying boasting about them because of Christ's work in them. This is like a, there's a difference between earthly boasting and Jesus boasting. And, and this is important language because the Corinthians were, in their culture, very braggadocious people. They, they, they took great pride in their rhetoricians, which is like our celebrities of this time. Maybe you could compare it in some ways to our love or a kind of idolization in celebrity culture around politicians, comedians, entertainers, sports figures, teams. Someone once said that with the rhetoricians and the rhetoric and the speakers of the Corinthian time, it's almost like you had your favorite battle rap individual and they just kind of battled each other with words. I kind of doesn't quite put the picture right because I can't imagine, you know, Paul being like Eminem fighting like, you know, L Cool J or whatever. I don't know what that looks like. But they had people who were very gifted speakers and they had a love for them. And Paul didn't quite match the expectations of bragging in him because he didn't look that impressive. He didn't speak very impressively. He spoke very plainly. Paul says his only boast is in the Lord. He doesn't operate like the Corinthians do out of earthly wisdom. He operates by God's grace, dependence. He's pure, 100% pure in his motives and intentions. He says he has a clear conscience before them. Essentially, this is a roundabout way of Paul saying in his words that even though the assessment of Paul was hurtful to him, that he's always approached them with the best pure intentions and he's wrestled with it to have a clear conscience of how he's supposed to approach ministry with them. Godly sincerity, grace-empowered godliness, is what I'm calling it, is foundational to the Christian life. It is foundational to discipleship. It doesn't mean being perfect or sinless. Also, having a clear conscience doesn't necessarily mean you're free from guilt unless you wrestle with it. It means that you're striving to walk in the light. And so he vulnerably, transparently opens his thoughts, his plans and intentions before the Lord to challenge it, to wrestle with it. It means he's pursuing Christ to be more and more like him. He's growing just like we ought to grow in our submission and obedience to Christ. A clear conscience is crucial to ministry. It's crucial to the leaders. It's crucial to the Christians because in ministry, you won't always make. In, in discipleship, in raising children, in helping people grow in Jesus, if you stay with someone long enough, you will probably have to do something or say something that won't make them happy. And even who are parents, you've experienced this, right? Immediately. Sometimes loving someone means restraining something or restricting something or saying something that's hard, that's not pleasing to the ears. See, you have to have a clear conscience. Because if you don't please Jesus, it doesn't matter who we please, right? That's why he's saying, I have a clear conscience because he submitted his thoughts, his intentions, his plans, his strategies, his desires to the Lord. And that often will bring him to a place where it's not always going to be happy with his engagement with the Corinthians, but he's doing it with a clear conscience in Christ. And he's pursuing grace-empowered godliness. What this means is he's doing ministry not just like everyone else in the culture around Corinth. He's not trying to be like the super apostles. He's not trying to be like the, the battle rap stars of their time. He's trying to do things by grace, by simplicity, by love for them. Which means when we make decisions in the church, when you make decisions in 
choosing how to prioritize family and ministry and all the things, you don't always necessarily choose what's most pragmatic or most convenient. You don't always choose what's easiest. You choose in a way that puts Christ at the center. We'll get back to that more in a moment. It doesn't mean that you're always going to do things in the most well-planned or the most relevant ways. You do things because it pleases God and it actually builds up other people, anchored in the grace of God. Grace-empowered godliness, a clear conscience. That's the first value he expresses. And that's what we need in ministry as we're maybe doing ministry at a church level or in your family or in your community groups. You have to have a clear conscience wrestling with the thoughts and plans and desires that you have for your family, for your community, for our church, and surrendering them to the Lord and saying, Lord, what is this about? Test my heart. Is it really about you? And is it really going to build up others? Second value He keeps the end in mind. He calls it the day of the Lord. Look at verse 13 and 14. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That's why I want to focus on the last part of this. When he talks about partially understanding, fully understanding, they don't quite get all that Paul is saying. Uh, One of the things we know about the interactions between Paul and the Corinthians is that we only have two of the possible four formal letters that were written back and forth. Two of them we don't have. There's a lot of back and forth wrestling with challenging things in the church. And already for 1 Corinthians, is really challenging. And so we were missing two of them. But they don't fully understand all that Paul is saying. But in all of this, he's saying He's keeping his mind, he's keeping his focus on the day of the Lord. That's the end. That's the eschaton, which means the the end, the, the final thing, the final day. We must be heavenly minded in our earthly, in our discipleship in order to be earthly good. In other ways, you, you need to actually have a long view when you're having short term drama and chaos. See, when you're in the midst of present conflict, like Paul is with the Corinthians, and he's being misunderstood. They don't only partially understand him. He's keeping the end in mind, the day of the Lord, where they will finally get it. And they will boast of Christ and Christ's work and Paul, and Paul will boast of them because they made it. Paul says in the Philippian uh, letter, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul constantly does ministry with the end in mind. Super helpful when you're in the middle of conflict, isn't it? Martin Luther once said, there's only two days in his calendar, this day and that day. I love that statement. Whenever you have something so profound, it's hard to trace if they actually said that, but we're attributing to them. But that's a great statement, isn't it? Because he's living this present day with the end day in mind, which is exactly what Paul is doing. And we must keep that in mind. As Paul is, I mean, think about how challenging 1 Corinthians, the letter as we looked at a number of years ago, what he had to write with. Paul, the reason he can wrestle through all that, the reason he can handle the, the personal attacks that he's getting from them now as he's expressing in 2 Corinthians is because he's keeping the end in mind. There's a day where Christ will make everything right and I will see my brothers and sisters from Corinth there, and that will make it worth it. And they will see us faithful until the end. See, if you keep the end in mind, it keeps things in perspective. It actually also gives meaning to everyday, seemingly mundane things. 
It also helps us understand that some of the, the, drudgery we, the drudgery and the difficulty we experience day over day right now will be worth it because Jesus is worth it. Seeing someone in the end be in Christ is worth it. That's Christ-centered boasting. That fills them with joy to consider that day where the Corinthians will be there in Christ. That's the hope of ministry. That day. As I was coming out of covid and all of us were kind of wrestling with some of these things, right? You may, you have, may not have said this, but there's these feelings, right? Like trying to kind of ex- experience uh, uh, pre-COVID times or go back to the good old, even people say that's pre-COVID, right? They said they, they long for the good old days. We see stuff like that. But then what the Christian scriptures remind us of is we are to live with that day in mind. So what would it mean if you were to see someone make it to the end how would that shape your interactions with someone in the presence? How would that shape your priority, your love, your sacrifice, your willingness to persevere through hard times? Consider the day of the Lord. And when you think about that day, Paul is telling us we will have power in our ministry. We will have perseverance. We will have faithfulness in our ministry. We will have faithfulness in our discipleship. We will have faithfulness in our raising of children who are prodigal children. Right? How, how do you love, and I know there are people in our church who have prodigal sons, prodigal daughters. How do you engage in that space? Because you have the end in mind. Because you know you want to see them there. And so how do you wrestle when they rebel, when they yell, when they hurt you so deeply? You have the day of the Lord in mind. How do you, how do you love a church as Paul does, who's now attacking him? Even though he's sacrificed so much, he has the day of the Lord in mind. How do you love your sibling who is also a Christian, but you're now in conflict because your parents have died and you're wrestling with estate planning and you haven't talked in five years? How do you wrestle with it? How do you pursue reconciliation when they've hurt you so deeply because you have the day of the Lord in mind? We have hope in that. That's how we go about ministry, discipleship, the church. That's how Paul does it. Third, and I'll spend a lot of time here and warning to the worship team, this is a very long point, so maybe I'll get to point four. We'll see. Uh, but at least this third point, this, is, this just rocked me. And that's why I spend a lot of time here. He goes about ministry and discipleship with this incredible Christ-centeredness. And we say that a lot in our church. We want that. But I, I really saw something amazing in that this week because he does it in the most boring way possible. Like he talks about his travel plans. And he's able to talk about Jesus. Like, that's amazing to me. But he does this with a Christ-centeredness. And I think it's a way for us to look at everyday life, everyday discipleship, everyday church through a Jesus lens. See, the main issue, one of the main issues that the Corinthians had with Paul is that he seems to be fickle. He's made a change in travel plans, not just once, but twice, maybe three times. There's a lot of details. Let me try and summarize it without putting all to sleep. Originally in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said to them that he was going to travel from Ephesus to Macedonia and then to Corinth and then to Jerusalem. Now, you don't need to know the geographical way to understand that, but he was traveling and Corinth was a part of that. And Corinth, well, he was going to spend an extended period of time with them, a long winter. Everyone was looking forward to it. It's like if you said to your family who lived in another country, we're going to spend Christmas break with you. We're going to spend the entire three weeks with you. Yet that was his plans. But his plans changed. He got bad news from Timothy on his way. He stopped there and he made an unanticipated trip from Ephesus straight to Corinth. 
And he changed his plans there. And so he was going to now not stay a long time, but do two trips to Corinth. Kind of go to Macedonia and then back to Corinth. So he's going to have a, a two stops in Corinth, not one long extended one. But then his plans changed again. Because of ongoing issues with him and the church and them attacking him, he decided it was best not to go back that second time and then send a tearful letter, which we don't have. Likely there's four letters. That's one of the letters we don't have. And so they didn't get the long visit that they expected. As Paul changed his plans, they didn't get the second double visit. They got one painful short visit. So they didn't get plan A, didn't get plan B, they got plan C. They didn't get 2020. <laughs> we had all great plans in 2020, didn't we? They didn't get 2021. They got 2022, New Year's Day, the flood. That's what they got. This caused a rift in the church. Rumors began to spread. He was untrustworthy. He's fickle. He makes it clear he's going to defend himself in a moment. That he's not fickle. He's doing it because he loves them. But he's practicing restraint throughout this. And one thing that's amazing in all this is he's the kind of explaining that he's not vacillating, that he's not changing his mind because he's fickle. He's able to bring it all in light of Jesus. Look at what he says in verses 18 to 20. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, this seems very confusing when you're meeting this for the first time and you're not familiar with the context, but this is amazing. I, could spend, I, I spent almost all my sermon prep on that sentence. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. How did he go from his travel flight plan itinerary to talking about Jesus? And what does that mean for us? It's amazing. He wants them to understand. In one way, this is an argument from lesser to greater. If I preached Christ to you, gave you the greater thing, certainly you can trust me on this lesser thing on my travel plans. And you can give me the benefit of the doubt that if I change it, I still love you in Christ. But also he's trying to show us and show them that while his plans may have changed, his centering on Jesus never changed. And that, that's almost what he was sharing with us. And I feel like this is a word for you. Like your plans, your ministry may change, but your motivation and centering on Jesus never changes. That's what you just said to us. This is a word for you. Because we didn't, I, we, this is exactly what God had for you as your last Sunday with us for a little bit. And Paul says, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. So he's trying to, he's taking this kind of them thinking, are you, are you kind of going back and forth? Yes and no, yes and no. No, and he brings it to Jesus because he wants them to see, show him, show them and show them his thinking that everything is processed through Jesus. It's Christ-centeredness. He's able to see in light of promises. The, the, the actual plans may change, but the yes in Jesus never changes. And he brings it in light of Jesus. And that shapes how he interacts with them. It shapes all his thinking. And I love that statement. All the promises of God find their yes in him. See, many people think Christianity is a no religion. Following Jesus is all the things you now have to say no to. And to be sure, there are some no's. Fundamentally and most powerfully, Jesus is God's yes to the world. Everything we need in this world to be right, 
to be full, to be satisfied, to be at peace is yes in Jesus. Jesus is not the world's maybe. He is yes. His coming had a purpose to seek and save the lost, reconcile sinners. And think about this from the Old Testament for a second. And I'm going to move. I'm going to list for you all the things. This is why I took all my sermon prep on this almost. I just wrote down all these things. This stirred my soul. Jesus, think about it from the Old Testament. Jesus is the yes of the Old Testament. He's the apex of the Old Testament. I mean, you know, in the Old Testament, there's this messianic wind that blows across all the pages of Scripture. That's why you, you kind of see types, shadows, predictions, promises, illusions everywhere. That's why Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he's unpacking it for these unnamed disciples. Everything in the Bible is, was and is pointing and about me. I mean, Jesus is the yes to the promise of the one coming who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the yes. He's the ark that provides salvation, not just to some at the time, but all who come to him. Jesus is yes to all of Abraham's promises for all the nations of the earth to be blessed. Jesus is the yes to the beloved son who was not spared like Isaac, but delivered up even after he died. Jesus is this disruptor baby that messes up kings of the time and even though they all want to come out and kill him, just like Moses. But he's a greater mediator, a greater shepherd who brought a greater deliverance than Exodus. Jesus is the great Passover lamb who not only takes away the sins for that year and they have to do it again and again and again, he does it forever. Jesus is the manna from heaven that will fully satisfy our hunger. Jesus is the water from the rock that saves. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the true Sabbath rest. Jesus is the ultimate temple and tabernacle that gives us everyday personal access to God. He's a better Joshua who brings us to a better land. He's a greater Boaz. He brings us into the family of God. He's the great yes to David. Someone who will come who will reign on the throne of God forever. All the promises of God are yes in him. I'm only beginning to touch the surface of those. And he's the only yes. All other potential saviors are no. He is the answer to all of life's questions. He is the yes to forgiveness. He is the yes to right standing before God. He is the yes to reconciliation with God and man. He is the yes to forgiveness of sin. He is the yes for freedom from guilt. He is God's yes. You want satisfaction in, in, in your soul? Jesus is that yes. Eternal life? Yes. In Jesus, glorious inheritance? Yes. Dwelling with God in new creation? Yes. No more tears, no more fears? Yes. If you're not a Christian, will Jesus have you? Yes. Jesus is the Father's yes to every promise, every need, every hope. Jesus, this crucified and risen Savior, is proof of God's yes to the world. Maybe you're in a season of hardship and doubt, or maybe you experience a lot of no's in your life. I pray this little exercise would remind you that Jesus is the yes you need. Jesus is the yes. That's amazing, isn't it? And Paul, is, as he's wrestling, see, think about this. This is why it's so profound. He's talking about his travel plans, and he goes to this. 
And I did that a longer exercise to show you how profound that statement is because this is what's shaping Paul's thinking. He's going about this ministry decision of where he should go if he should not go because of Jesus' promise. What if we all made our decisions? What if we went about everyday life? What if we went about church, discipleship, everything that we do in light of this promised yes in Jesus? How would that reshape us? You run into a problem in your life that seems insurmountable. How do you wrestle with that in light of Jesus is the yes? As we wrestled with, you know, some of our other cross-cultural workers and, and, and the place they're going to was kicking out tons of people and they, they, they came here to, you know, kind of be away from COVID for a little bit uh, because it was really bad there and it got really bad here and they couldn't go back for a long time. And then everyone's saying, no, you can't go back. It's not possible. It's not way. <laughs> we prayed, if God's will is for this, if Jesus is a yes, he will make a way. And the impossible happens. How do we go about decisions in life of Jesus is the yes. Last thing, briefly, he goes about ministry, discipleship, life, founded and grounded in joy and love. Look at verse 24 and then jump to chapter 2, verse 3. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And I wrote as I did so that when I come, I might not suffer pain from those who would not make me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He ministers with joy and love in mind. What would it look like if we thought about what we did in our Christian life and following Jesus if we worked for the joy of others. This is amazing. This is a demonstration of the Holy Spirit in Paul. This is a group that's very difficult. What an attitude towards a hard church that he's working for their joy in Christ. What do you want to see in your kids? What do you want to see in your community? What do you want to see in this church? Abounding joy in Christ. What would that mean to your time, your talents, your resources? What would that mean to your priorities, sacrifice, your ministry? How does he work for their joy? He says, he's not lording over them. He says, with you. He's cooperating with them. He's not beating down on them. That's a good reminder, right, of ministry, right? In many ways, we have a responsibility, but we can't change people's hearts. We can't change what they do necessarily. And so we have a responsibility, but they also have a responsibility. The Corinthians have a responsibility. That's why Paul says in another letter, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, I don't determine how you're going to grow. I counsel, I guide, I encourage, I give you godly examples, but you actually need to also respond and grow. But he's working for their joy. What a vision for ministry and the church and for our families that we work for the joy of others in Christ. And he does it in abundant love. This is amazing. Uh, to be honest, I, I probably would have just given up if I was Paul. I, I wouldn't be able to take it. And I know that because even some of the small things that I've had to encounter in our church over the last number of years, I can barely take that. So I read this in Paul and I'm like, I, I don't have this. I want what you have. 
and I'm trying to learn to have what he has. I mean, they, I would have just canceled the Corinthians. I would have just said, hashtag cantankerous Corinthians, see ya. Like, I quit. But he doesn't. Because as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, he has a love that bears all things. And he writes that from a place of pain. True love believes. That's amazing. He loves them. Loves them. What would our ministry look like, church, if we did so with this grace-empowered godliness, with the end in mind, with a, a, a real profound Christ-centeredness, and with joy and love? I pray that that seeps into our church, seeps into your family, seeps into your life, seeps into how you relate to friends and how you raise your children. I pray they would seep into our city so they would see that Jesus is the yes that the city and this world needs. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. May it strengthen us as we need to. Be strengthened. May it point us to Jesus and more of him. As we continue to wrestle in this book, may it reveal our weakness so that we may find our strength in you to your glory. Amen.